Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Cry havoc and let's slip the hounds of war. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are talking about beasties and folklore. Woohoo, beast critters. Specifically, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, you know. (laughs) So, we are working our way through various creatures and cryptids from folklore, and this week we are deciding we're going to go canine heavy today. Specifically talking about things like the black dogs and... Yeth hounds and cat Sith. Right. And with these, I mean, we are going canine heavy because you find more of these canines more in lore. We will talk about the various felines, particularly, again, we are focusing right now on largely Britain folklore, a little bit of Western Europe. They do have some cat lore we will touch on. It's not near as prevalent. And generally, it was just, you see a cat, there's probably a witch involved. Probably. There are some Insect critters, that will probably be a whole different episode in its own right, and that tends to be more along the lines of something like Mothman, which is definitely North America. Yeah, that is definitely an American cryptid. Before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit of our social media stuff, mainly because we were recently on another podcast. Woohoo! Yeah, we got to be guests on the podcast Some Patches Required. SPR is a video game-centric podcast talking about the video game industry and different aspects of game design and different issues within the video right. game industry. And they had us on to talk about D&D and the influence of tabletop games on video games and vice versa. Yes. It was a wonderful episode. I put a link to it in our show notes last week, but I didn't have time to record a little blurb to put in at the beginning of the episode. So this is us talking about it now. No, that was actually a lot of fun to record. And again, and I've mentioned many times that I had seen kind of on the outskirts people playing various tabletop games, but never actually got involved. And so for me, getting into role-playing games and tabletop games, I really did come in from the video game end of tabletop gaming. I mean, I did too. The first time I heard somebody talking about D&D, I still remember it. I was in the band room after we had finished rehearsal for the day, and a couple of friends were talking to each other about their home D&D game. And this would have been around that transition between second to third edition. Okay, yeah. So 2001, 2002, somewhere in that range. And one of them had mentioned that their character had died in the last session, quote, because they went to fight God, he knocked me off the platform and I forgot I had boots of flying. (laughs) (laughs) That is something you do not want to forget. And so I heard him talking about it and I thought they were talking about a video game for the longest time. And then it wasn't until another year or two later when the guy I shared a seat with on the school bus pulled out his 3.5 player's handbook, and that's whenever I made my first character who was the half-elf ranger with three hit points. Nice. Because he made me roll for my hit points, and I rolled a one. As you do sometimes. As you do sometimes. Anyway, getting on. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please feel free to send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at Undercommon Taste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where all of our write-ups are. We are currently working on more stuff to fill out that page because I have been on a bit of a hiatus 
because life's been busy, yo. It happens. And definitely go check out Some Patches Required. They're great guys. The show was a ton of fun. Yes, thank you again to Zach and Aaron for inviting us on, even though it took us four months of back and forth to (laughs) to finally schedule a time to sit down. And then it ended up being another three, almost four months before the episode got out. We had a whole big section on us talking about the OGL near the end of it that ended up getting completely (laughs) axed because it was a moot point. Right. (laughs) But yeah, so it was a wonderful experience. All the respect to those guys. Please go and check out their show. Absolutely. We are on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. We are also on itch. Itch. Oh, no. Undercommontaste.itch.io. I always get those two flipped. (laughs) That's where you can find our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake. And you can find my solo RPG forever home where you have to deal with the ghosts of a home that wants to keep you warm for the rest of your life. Yes. If you want to find our other podcasts, you can also find those wherever you find your normal podcast at. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google. Just search under Common Taste. As always, rates and reviews definitely help because that helps increase our visibility and it makes it easier for people to find us. So let's go ahead and get started. Yeah, let's jump right in. So as I had mentioned with the flavor quote, you know, cry havoc and let slip the hounds of war. We're not specifically going to be talking about warhounds in this case, but rather hellhounds. Yeah, Hellhounds are one of the flavors. Yes, definitely. They're probably the oldest version we can find. So as we are kind of diving through and breaking into this folklore and seeing stuff, things that we thought were just around forever because they're so common and they feel old, they feel like they just have this huge history, really came up kind of shallow. Again, kind of like the whole, you know, vampire werewolf lore that I dove into and realized that that was something by Universal Studios in the 40s. Some of these black dog hellhounds aren't a whole lot older if actually they might be even a touch younger but speaking about hellhounds particularly these can kick as far back as ancient greece with cerebus or, or cerebus depending on how you want to pronounce that kerberos kerberos <laughs> it's spot yes it is spot a straight translation means spot which makes me very happy cerebus is named spot him a good dog has the goodest boy he is the goodest boy he's the goodest boy he does a great job i mean he only had you know what one or two souls get out and all of the extent of... Uh, I can think of three. No, four. Hercules did at one point. Persephone has at various points. Uh, she kind of gets a pass, but yeah. She's the living girlfriend. She gets a pass. She, she, she kind of gets a pass. Deucalion did when he brought his wife out. And uh, Sisyphus, who definitely wins the high score. He did it three different times. And this is, in fact, why he has to roll the boulder up to his hill, because he pissed everybody, everybody off <laughs> doing it. He is one of my absolute favorite Greek myths. Yeah. But that's a pretty good track record. Yeah, that is know. a great track record. All of eternity, you got four people with one with, okay, he, they get a pass. Yeah, and he got the experience bonus. He yeah. got the boost. Yeah. So, no, it wasn't really fair the second and third time. Right. But, yeah. So going through, these hellhounds are generally going to be guardians. They're going to be, you know, the keepers of the gate. And much like the old trope that if someone breaks out of prison, then you're breaking out the bloodhounds and you're tracking them down. And so these hellhounds at various points can be part of a bounty hunting crew or they can just be something released from the hells as a expression of whatever Maleficent will is there. So again, the hellhounds throughout history, throughout lore, have taken various things. Sometimes they are there to find someone who is so evil that they need to be drugged back to hell or back to the hells. 
Sometimes they are brought out as shock troops for an infernal army of sorts. Sometimes they are to go and find and track someone who has tried to escape or otherwise break the rules of death. Looking at you, my various necromantic friends. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. And, you know, there are, of course, other parallels to that in other cultures. You know, all of the talks about the wild hunt. Yes. From various Germanic, Scandinavian... Even Celtic folklore has some aspect of the Wild Hunt story involved in it. And so there are hounds involved in the Wild Hunt that track down, that run down whoever the prey of the Wild Hunt happens to be in that particular story. Right. And again, these are going to be tracking hounds. These are going to be baying hounds. These are also, depending on the aspect, going to be a martial dog of sorts. So they're not going to be... Your lap dog, so much as they are going to be a mid to large sized dog, be they a hound. Though, honestly, I would love to see an infernal basset hound. It would be kind of amazing. <laughs> Giant floppy ears. <laughs> but things I kind of think of are like maybe like the Cane Corso, uh, possibly a pit bull. As sweet as they are, they were a military dog in World War One. Something like the English Mastiff or the Neapolitan Mastiff. Think Fang from the Harry Potter series, that big wrinkly yeah, the dog. Irish wolfhound. The yeah. Irish wolfhound or an elkhound also. Yeah, so these are going to be large, strong beasts. And so coming across one of these on the table in a game, probably going to be scaled up a point or two above just your basic wild animal. I would probably guess just off the cuff. I mean, there is some translations and Ian dove more into the actual translations, but I guess these probably come in CR1 to 2-ish. A lot of them actually end up in the, up and around the CR4 range. Oh, okay. Talking about things like Yeth Hounds and Shadow Mastiffs. Yeah. I'm pretty sure both of those came out at around a CR4. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Bar Guest. That's also a CR4. CR4. Yeah. So yeah, those are some other, those are some of the game translated options. Right. And again, you do see that range because hunting dogs are not all uniform. Right. You know, it all depends on what you're hunting. So, like, talking about the Yeth Hounds, the Yeth Hounds are more of a Greyhound sort of feel to them. Yeah. They're long and they're lean and they're fast. They're intended to run down the prey to catch the prey. Whereas something like a Shadow Mastiff, Shadow Mastiff is almost more like a guard dog. Yeah. They still run in packs and they still hunt in packs, but they are more in line with that bigger, stockier guard dog sort of feel to them. They're not going to be running you down. They're going to be there after you've been winded to kind of pin you down and finish the job, as it were. Right. But this also gives great aspects. So if you want to start working these in the table or your story, the first thing I'm going to think about is these are going to come kind of in waves throughout your story. So either your party is maybe broken out of some sort of infernal dungeon. Maybe you yourself has broken out of the Nine Hells or Gehenna or something along those lines. Or perhaps your warlock has just gone full into the dark with his necromancy. Or perhaps, you know, maybe you've got a circle of spore druids who's gone crazy or your wizard or sorcerer. And so you've done something to gain the attention of some sort of otherworldly patron or entity, you have somehow put a toe or foot over the line. Or maybe you've just taken a flying long jump. So early on as this happens, with your party being lower level, maybe you come across one of these hellhounds. And your party should be able, you know, at a lower level, all of them together, four on one. That should be a fairly good fight. But as you dispatch this beast, maybe it gives out a baying call. 
And that's it. And maybe two or three sessions later, you're in town and now there's two or three. And this pack is going to slowly build in size and become larger and stockier as they start to hound down and corral your party or whatever their target is. Yeah, and there are some classes that are obviously more in line with using this particular story element, Warlocks, of course, being one of them, but the Shadow Sorcerer. Yeah. I mean, it is actually part of their mechanic. At 6th level, they get a Hound of Ill Omen, which is effectively a Shadow Mastiff. Yeah. It doesn't use the Shadow Mastiff stats. It uses modified Direwolf stats, but still... For all intents and purposes, it is a Shadow Mastiff. And so having that sort of thing where maybe starting around level three, where, you know, the party is starting to really get in stride and everybody has managed to unlock their subclasses by that point, you hear the baying of a hound in the distance. You know, things start to happen that you're not really in charge of. You know, things like you wake up in the morning and you find large dog paw prints around the perimeter of your camp. Things of that nature. And then as you're wrapping up level 5, as you're about to hit level 6, this Shadow Mastiff shows up. And, you know, a 5th level party versus a Shadow Mastiff, that's going to be sort of skewed towards the party in that one. Because, again, it is a CR4 monster. But having it be sort of a thing where... It's going to be a Harbringer, and that's the thing that kind of builds anticipation with the party. Oh, yeah. And then after they go through and have to fight off this Shadow Mastiff, you know, it ends up coming to heal as the Shadow Sorcerer's Hound of Ill Omen. Oh. And that's how they get that feature at the end of that bump up to level six. I like it. Again, that's going to take a huge amount of pre-prep, and it's going to take a decent amount of conversation planning with the party and a lot of buy-in. But I think this is one of those instances where if you communicate it with your party that this is what you're attempting to do, if you have good players, they will facilitate oh, that yeah. story. I mean, I would totally buy into that story because, I mean, that's going to be... It's so much better than, okay, I leveled up, I get this, I get this, I get... Okay, great, it's all on paper. If you can add story or game elements to why you've leveled up or how you've gotten your new ability or items... That always makes the game so much more immersive, and I am a huge fan of game immersion. I was going to bring up another way, even if you have a long list of like lawful good characters and there's no real reason to bring one of these up, maybe you've cast True Resurrection, or maybe one of your players at some point has dropped and you've cast Resurrection to bring one of your characters back. Maybe this is like a level 15, 16 party, and now you've brought this character back, and whatever entity was in the afterlife wants him back or her back but now these hellhounds are coming to recollect to repossess yeah yeah because zydrate comes in a little glass vial yeah <laughs> but talking about a different variant yeth hounds yeah yeth hounds are almost exclusively tied to the queen of air and darkness yes tied to the unseely court very powerful archfey are capable of creating packs of yeth hounds they tend to be evil aligned they tend to be yeah the way I understand it, Yeth Hounds are the Unseelie Court's answer to the Blink Dogs of the Seelie Court. Fair enough. That makes a perfect amount of sense. Um, because they're both the coursing hunting hounds yes. of the various courts. Yeth Hounds being, whenever they're created, they are bound to a master. So this would be an Unseelie Fae 
who has done something grand in the name of the Queen of Air and Darkness, and she is rewarding their loyalty, rewarding their service by giving them this pack of Yeth Hounds. If you upset that Archfey, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to sick their pack of Yeth Hounds on you. Release the Hounds! And so that is another thing where you don't have to have that infernal or demonic element right. to it. You can do this with just a Feywild connection. Shadow Mastiffs, they run in packs, they're from the Shadowfell. You can do this with, you know, say you've come across a particularly juicy piece of forbidden knowledge, and now Vecna wants it. Okay. And so Vecna, with his tendrils in the Shadowfell, sends a pack of Shadow Mastiffs after you. That makes perfect sense. And there are other similar things like there's a beastie from third edition called the vor which is effectively hellhounds but for the abyss okay and so you know if you end up upsetting a demon lord instead of a devil then they're going to send vor after you that makes perfect sense now i've not actually run through curse of strahd but i could totally see the vampires again with the shadowfell influence having maybe Two of the Shadow Mastiffs guarding the entrance to their manor. And so this would be one of those points where you're going to want to have your players kind of do some research before. Maybe do some investigation checks. Maybe try to find a way. So yeah, they can approach the front door and deal with these big old puppies. Or maybe there is a secret passage through the basement or around or a key or a back door or some way to distract the hounds, the dogs, whatever. You could use this to kind of build up and do more of that RP versus just all combat rolls. Right. Now, we ended up going straight into game lore stuff. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the actual folklore. The folklore? Behind some of these. So, again, with these, it's really strange because some of them, like I said, the Hellhound itself, the concept of the Hellhound, goes fairly far back. But it's all really surface. Yeah, there's hellhounds and they guard the gates and sometimes they're part of an infernal army. And that's really it. Otherwise, they are omens. Uh, you know, you talked about the, uh, what was the term for the shadow sorcerer? The, with the, the hound of ill omen. Yeah, the hound of ill omen. That describes them personally. Particularly with something like the Barghest. The Barghest itself was an omen of death. If you fully saw the Barghest, like just full on, hey, look. There's a bar guest. You are dying within a day. If you saw, like, the ear or the head or maybe the tail of the bar guest as it went past a corner, you were probably dying within the month. So these were an omen of death and of disaster coming through. The black hounds, again, kind of like an ill omen. They tend to be a lot more modern. Anything I saw with them, they were also related with witches. So again, going back into game mechanics, probably something like with a coven of hags or a witch's coven in general. But this is going to let you know that something is not quite right where you're at with your location. And so that's what they were. When things started kind of going creepy, weird, and wrong, people started claiming to be seeing these black dogs or these different kind of hounds. Yeah, and there are... A few instances of black dogs, black hounds throughout English folklore. Right. Most of them are 16th century or newer. Right. There are a few that ended up, I got real excited seeing this <laughs> whole big list of them, and then I clicked through and they're all like, you know, 1960s. Yeah. Again, 1960s, you have the whole uh, Summer of Sam. I forget the actual, or yeah. 
Son of Sam. It was the, the Son of Sam killer during the 60s. I forget. I think the dog he said was named was Davy, and apparently this dog had talked to him. And a lot of black dog stories kind of came up from that whole scenario I know of, at least in Western U.S. lore. It's one of those things where one person sees them, then another person, then another person. It almost becomes a point of mass hysteria. So I could see points of where an inquisition would get called in, people would start seeing, and I'm using air quotes with this, these black dogs, either to point the finger at someone else so they're not going to get in trouble, or to be like, oh yeah, I knew something was wrong the whole time because I saw a black dog over at Betsy's house over there. Just because, again, kind of like that whole Salem witch trial feel where everybody just starts pointing the finger and accusing everybody, though there might not be any actual real evidence. Yeah. You say Salem witch trials. The German witch craze. Yeah. You want to talk about something that put the Spanish Inquisition to shame. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are documented accounts when the witch craze would sweep through a town and by the time everyone is done, you know, pointing fingers and executing witches, there's only like two women left in the entire village. You know, talking about hundreds of people being executed as witches within a town. Right. Over the course of a few months. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. The Inquisitions, it's Spanish, just I'm using the term Inquisition as a catch-all for all of the Inquisitions are, they're horrifying. They are really a dark and grim, but very curious aspect to look at psychologically. But yeah, so talking a little bit about the Black Dogs and what I read, the Bar Guest, from my reading, is classified as a specific yes. Black Dog. yes. And one of the things that they all seem to have in common, they almost always show up at night. Yes. So you're never going to see them in the daytime. A lot of them are explanations to explain away mysterious deaths of cattle or people. Right. They're almost always described as having a fear-inducing baying or howling. Yeah. The Hound of the Baskervilles is one instance of a black dog in... A more modern literary context. Right. So that is something to keep in mind. And there are various dog-like creatures in TTRPGs that will take several elements, but not the whole thing. Right. And then just sort of mishmash them to get a different flavor. Yeah. Because, I mean, like Ian said, they do all have kind of the same base feel, but you can sit there and piece and part out and kind of direct that whichever direction you want to go. And you should, especially if you're going to use them as a pack dog or a hunting dog or eventually a war dog. Now, going back and talking about the bar guest, one thing that I really did find interesting was breaking down the etymology of the name. And so, guest meaning geist or ghost and bar, they said, could possibly mean like town or center. Or it could be a pronunciation of bear. So a bear ghost. And so if you've ever seen a black bear, you know, a small to juvenile black bear is going to be about the size of a large dog. And you talk about this terrible baying. Well, what if instead of baying, it's an outright roar? And so you didn't see a black dog, you saw a black bear. Would be kind of terrifying and kind of awesome, I think. So I enjoy bears as much as I enjoy moose and geese. And so I think spirit bear just tearing stuff up, devil bear would be kind of awesome. Right. And as you said, it can be a cognate from the German. It's really not 100% clear. Uh, a couple of the options include Bergeist, mm -hmm. which would be a bear ghost, mm -hmm. or Berggeist, so a mountain Ghost. ghost. So it's a ghost that lives up in the mountains. mountains and then it comes down to eat and then it goes back. 
I mean, because a lot of the accounts talk about livestock that has had its throat ripped out and then left. Yeah. So it's something along those lines. And I could see using something like Bergeist or Bergist because, again, as we've talked about in previous episodes, particularly with wolves and bears, you didn't mention them by name. Kind of like the same folklore with some Native American creatures that we'll probably try to touch upon later. But to mention them by name was to summon them. And as I like to jokingly say, be careful what you summon because then you got to deal with it. And so you would use this other name to, yeah, it wasn't a bear came and killed everything. It was a bergist, you know. So you would use this as a possible substitution name. Right, yeah. Now, transitioning a little bit off of our talk of the Bargeist into D&D context. Yes. The Bargeist in D&D is something completely different. Yes. I love the buildup for it. So... In D&D lore, the Barghast were created by the General of Gehenna, who is the predominant Yugoloth yes. in Gehenna. The lore surrounding it is that while goblins believe that the Barghast were a boon granted by the god Bane whenever he was still in control of the goblin pantheons, what they actually are are these creatures that were created by the General of Gehenna because of a broken contract. They are basically just spite creatures. Yeah. So Maglubiet, who is currently the dominant deity in the Goblinoid Pantheon, petitioned the General of Gehenna for Yugoloths for whatever operation he was doing. I haven't been able to nail down what that operation was. It may have been Maglubiet's move to cement himself as the head of the Pantheon. Okay. That seems like something grand enough to where you would want the outside help. Absolutely. But it could have been something as simple as, you know, going to fight Grumsh over something, you know, wanting some particular juicy portion of the battlefield and really just wanting that extra muscle to punch to take it. Yeah. So, Maglubiat makes this deal. The General Gehenna sends the Yugoloths. A bunch of Yugoloths end up getting killed in the whole operation. And when it comes time for Megluviat to make good on his half of the deal, he reneges. Never trust a gavos. He decides that he doesn't want to fulfill his side of the bargain. And so, the General of Gehenna makes the bar guests, which they're a shape changer. Yes. They're capable of going between a goblin form and a wolf form. In some of the older editions, they also had a hybrid form, like a proper natural lycanthrope. Yes. But in 5th edition, it's one or the other. They don't have a halfway. You can always tell a bar guest in their goblin form as opposed to a normal goblin because they tend to have sort of a yellowish tint to their skin and they have very exaggerated wolfish features. Okay. And their whole thing is they devour souls. Yes. They are sent from Gehenna into the material plane as children. And they are supposed to stay in the material plane until they can consume 17 worthy souls. Their preference is for powerful goblins, but they will do anything if the soul is worthy enough. enough. Why 17? Because that is the number of oaths Maglubiet broke when he broke his contract. I love that. I love that bit of lore. That's awesome. Um, and the whole purpose of this is because the General of Gehenna is trying to rob Maglubiet of souls for his army in his fight against Grumsh. I love it. 
Because the souls of worthy goblins end up going to Acheron and joining Maglubiot's army. Not if a bar guest eats it. Yeah. So even in 5th edition, when you break down, when you get to look at the bar guest stats, they have the ability soul feed, which is just brutal. If this bar guest comes up to a creature that's at zero or fewer hit points, it can consume its soul. The creature has to make a constitution check against the bar guest's and a casting, it's a charisma modifier. I think it's a 15 or so. It's a plus two, yeah. Yeah. So if they fail, the creature immediately dies and cannot be resurrected by any means, any means, until the bar guest is dead. Not entirely. Okay. That's not exactly how it works. It's similar. Okay. So they are able to consume the soul from a recently dead okay. humanoid. It has to have died within the last 10 minutes. Okay. It takes a minute for them to render the body into its component parts and consume the soul. Once the soul has been consumed, it takes 24 hours for the bar guest to digest the soul. Okay. If the bar guest is slain during that time, the soul passes on to its afterlife. If you try to resurrect the person while the soul is still in the bar guest, it's a 50-50 shot of whether or not it works. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is big because you have to have at least a 7th level resurrection or a ninth level true resurrection to do that because the body is in pieces. Yep. And even a wish spell. You don't want to waste a wish spell on a coin flip. Right. And once that 24 hours is up, the soul has been digested and you cannot resurrect the person through any mortal magic. I like it. Summon the dragons. <laughs> so they have lots of resistances. Yes. They have a couple of immunities. They have a couple of damage immunities. They have some innate spell abilities. So they're able to cast Levitate, Minor Illusion, and Pass Without Trace at will. Think about that for a second. You're fighting this bar guest. This bar guest is starting to get... You're starting to get the better of it. Okay. It's starting to realize that it's in a losing proposition. Because in addition to those, also has once a day, Charm Person, Dimension Door, and Suggestion. Right. So the first thing it might do is try to use Suggestion to turn one of its attackers on their allies. Fair enough. Or Charm Person to do the same thing. Or it might just decide to nope out of there with a Dimension Door. Yeah. You end up going and tracking it. Can you imagine how difficult it's going to be to track this possibly goblin... Possibly Wolf, that can use Pass Without Trace to give itself a plus 10 on all of its stealth checks. And cast Levitate so it's hovering and not leaving any physical tracks on the ground. Right. I believe they can cast Minor Illusion as well. Just to throw you further off. Yeah. So if you don't have Detect Magic up, they can just disguise themselves as this tree. Yeah. And you'll just walk right past them and... Yeah. No one will even notice. Now, the website, I believe it's called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Yes. I saw a wonderful write-up on what to do with a bar guest. Because, again, the bar guest does enjoy going after the goblins and the other goblinoids and the gobblegobbos. But he also breaks down a lot of things. You look at this bar guest. One, it's a fairly strong creature. If I recall, I think it's running at a 19th strength or a 17th strength and a 19 dex. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also kicking a 13 intelligence. So it's smarter than your average NPC walking around. It's got some smarts. It's smarter than just about all of the goblins that you're going to yeah. be facing alongside of it. So the whole thing is, is that if this goblin party or adventurer party or NPC party, either way, comes up and attacks this bargeist for whatever reason, and it's forced to use dimensional door, it's going to save that dimensional door for its get out of jail free card. It's going to nope out. 
But now it's going to be resentful and angry. So yeah, it's got minor illusion. Yes, it has pass without a trace. Yes, it has levitate. But it also can switch these forms. So did you see it in its wolf form or did you see it in its goblinoid form? Because it's coming back probably in the next day or two to start picking off your party one at a time because it's going to become an ambush predator at this point. Yeah, and they are going to be running with goblins. These goblins are going to be very subservient because they don't want to demonstrate any sort of dominant traits or powerful traits because they don't want their soul consumed. Yeah. They're smart enough to have that self-preservation. The tall blade of grass gets chopped. (laughs) Absolutely. And so this bar guest might have a clan of 20, 30 goblins at its heels. Yeah. And so he's going to start cycling through sending squads to just sort of come at you and Take a few pot shots every so often. Yeah, you know, you might only connect with one or two, but they can do it at regular enough intervals to where you can't get a long rest in. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to start getting passive healing. You're going to run out of spell slots. You're going to start picking up ranks of exhaustion. Oh, yeah. And so they're going to start grinding you down, start whittling you down, and whenever it looks like, you know, all of the casters are down to just cantrips, everyone's got two ranks of exhaustion, there's nobody in the party that's above half health anymore. That's when he's going to show up with ten of his little buddies, and he's going to have a heyday. I like that. I was envisioning a couple different scenarios. Either one, he they would come back solo, and like I said, just kind of constantly nip at your heels. But yes, if they did have this cohort of goblins with them, they could guide you to the ground that the Bargast chooses. And as Ian says, with Myron Illusion, maybe it is a tree. So you're in the middle of this fight with this group of goblins. The goblins to it are going to be largely expendable. So it's going to wait till the most opportune moment, break that illusion, come and hammer one or two individuals in the party just super hard. And as soon as you notice it, Dimension Door out. Yeah. Or, you know, because it has, you know, levitate and pass without trace. Right. It's going to be real easy for it to just linger up in a tree, you know, 10 feet up, cast Minor Illusion on itself to make it look like some foliage. Oh, nice. Drop air. (laughs) Yep, drop air. Exactly. (laughs) So the party goes by and he drops out of the tree and lands on the cleric at the back of the party and mauls him. The tiny halfling. Yeah. Yeah, you know, (laughs) gets in one good round of attacks and then dashes away. Right. And again, depending on how you want to envision this bargain, it is intelligent. It is strong. So, it's intelligent enough to have personality. Is it spiteful? Absolutely it's spiteful. So, I mean, again, is it more, I want that instigator, I'm going to kill everybody now, or I'm going to make you suffer because you insulted me. You dared raise your hand against me, and now your life is going to be long but miserable. Yes. I am going to take away everything that you have ever loved and cared for. Yes. One piece at a time. time. Yes. And so these would make, especially if you're planning on branching a third to fifth, maybe to a little more mid-range and get up to like level 10 to 15, these really would make a great reoccurring villain or even a lieutenant to your BBEG because they can easily escape, they can come back, and they can constantly hound your party. Yeah, especially if your big bad for your campaign happens to be a Yugoloth. Oh, yeah. You know, having an Arcanoloth at the top of this whole food chain. Oh, nice. Because then now you also have a Yugoloth 
a very powerful Yugoloth who is a powerful spellcaster. Oh, nice. That this bar guest is answering to. Now, for some variants, in 3rd edition, there was a greater bar guest. Ooh. So they were bigger, they had more hit dice, they had more hit points, they had bigger, badder attacks and all. But they also had additional spells that they had as innate spells. They had Invisibility Sphere. Okay. Which basically says, me and all of my friends within 20 feet of me are now invisible. Nice. Mass Bull's Strength. Oh. So you buff everybody's strength. Okay. And mass enlarge. Oh my. Because it's not big enough already. So now, this was really important back in 3rd edition whenever small-sized humanoids had penalties on their attacks. Their attacks didn't do as much damage. Now, everybody, all of these goblins are now medium-sized creatures. Okay. Any hobgoblins that are with them are now large-sized creatures. Any bugbears that are with them are now huge-sized creatures. And so... You end up having this much more powerful strike force that just is able to swing way above its weight class. Absolutely. And it can hide them all in this invisibility sphere until they get close. Right. And then surprise chaos. Right. Oh, I absolutely love that. There's another really fun mechanic with the Bargas. Like we said, they have a fair bit of immunities and resistances. So again, their resistance to pretty much any kind of physical non-magical attack. That's bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. They are resistant to fire. Makes sense. They're resistant to cold. Makes sense. They're immune to poison and they're immune to, um, was it stun effects, prone effects? There's another effect they're immune to. But what's really interesting with this Barghast is it has one massive chink in its armor. Absolutely. If you can get a Barghast in an area of fire that is at least 10 feet in one dimension, and it's not able to get out of that fire at the end of its turn. The start of its turn. Oh, at the start of its turn, Yeah. yeah. So if it starts its turn in this fire that is at least 10 feet wide in one dimension, it is instantly Banished to Gehenna. Poof. This said, the Barghest is going to see your casters, and it's immediately not going to like them. <laughs> and another thing is that this doesn't hold for things like Fireball. Right, or Dragon's Be- Breath. Because they are instantaneous effects. They don't have a duration. Right. But something like a Wall of Fire would absolutely do it. Yeah, I could see that. I could see if you really wanted to kind of maybe forewarn your party... And kind of give them some clues without giving them clues. Maybe give them a couple of flasks of alchemist fire. You could do that. Um, I could see that as a potential. Kind of see if they how they could work with it. I do like giving the party just random tools from times and let them see what they can MacGyver. Yeah, because mundane fire will do it. Yeah. They just have to get the fire big enough and then get the bar guest into it. Right. So I'm thinking a couple flasks of lantern oil and an alchemist flasks and some really good throw rolls. Or, you know, just... Find a way to lure this Barghest into a barn. Oh, yeah. And burn it down? And just burn this barn down I on like top it. of it. We don't need no water. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably do the same. Well, no. A pitfall trap wouldn't work because it does have that, you know, wonderful levitate ability. So. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that I forgot to mention, they're also telepathic. Yeah. There's that too. So they have telepathy out to 60 feet. And because they have this Yugoloth origin... They are able to speak not only common and goblin, but also abyssal and infernal. Yeah, just because. Just because. And that could be another way to... Torment the party. Further torment the party is, you know, they're hiding 
in the vicinity. You know, they're hiding 40 feet away. Right. And they target the person who is on guard duty that night, and they just start, you know, putting lines of abyssal or lines of infernal through their head. Oh, I like that. Um, Especially if it's like a paladin. Oh, nice. Yes. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, if your party has any kind of like inner party conflict dynamic, or if your player has done something maybe far outside of character, start throwing in questions for the psyche of this character. And again, this builds character depth. And so now is it this character's conscience working at him or is this Vargas needling him? Yeah, absolutely. And that will also work really well if, you know, you have someone like a fiend-pacted warlock. Right. You know, because if this Barkas can figure out that this is a warlock, mm-hmm. because it's intelligent enough to figure out that somebody is a warlock, and they can figure out who or what the patron is. Oh, nice. If they can figure out, say, you know, this warlock has an archdevil as a patron... Then they just start feeding them the occasional line in Infernal, impersonating their patron. Yes. And just start feeding them lines in Infernal to make them doubt whether or not their patron is actually talking to them. Right. And just start giving them contradicting orders or contradicting information or, you know, telling them, I need you to go and do this thing to this party member. Okay. And so they have to try and figure it out how that's going to work out. I like that. Another way I would use this is if your player has either like a past with a lost love or maybe lost family members, you know, and so now they're going to do this. So are they going to hear the voice of the person they knew somewhere off in the woods? Are they going to be in the middle of combat and then suddenly see the person that killed their parents in that horrible, tragic event that happened in the beginning of the story that starts your whole character's backstory, you know, you can really play with these psychology and story mechanics really well with telepathy. And, you know, because telepathy is not mind-reading, you're not going to be able to just start grabbing these things out of the person's mind, but there's nothing to say that you can't give this bar guest if you're wanting it to be a recurring villain Give it a few levels in Sorcerer or a few levels in Warlock. You know, give it a few levels in Archfiend Warlock and have this Arcanaloth be its patron. patron. Yes. And so now it's able to get Detect Thoughts. Yeah. And now it's able to start digging in your brain. And so it's able to start pulling these little bits of information out to further enhance its torments of the party. Right. Now, as a player, there's few things as exciting and frightening at the same time as when the DM reaches over and hands a folded piece of paper quietly to another player. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's like, ah, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I think we've done a good job talking about the bar guest. We've been on it for a minute. <laughs> a minute or two. But the bar guest really does encompass and branch into most of these hellhound type creatures. Yes, it does. And it is the one thing that has the most lore Attached. surrounding it. And it has the most variation and the most utility to it. Right. Because it is also attached to a humanoid form. And it has that humanoid intelligence yes these other ones they're smart for animals i mean most of them are rocking around an intelligence of six yeah which is super smart for a beast yeah i mean most of your beasts are rocking you know between one and three yeah so an intelligence six that is a very slow-witted human right an extremely smart dog an extremely smart dog because these are 
canines. Yeah. And so that fits. I would probably put like, if you have, again, I have birds, so I would put a smart parrot probably around a six or a seven possibly. Yeah, something like a Border Collie or an Australian Shepherd, one of those very intelligent herding breeds. Yeah. Would also fit there in that intelligent six. Yes. I would probably, honestly, for a human analog, I'd probably put a toddler about one to two, probably around a six to seven. Um, Again, you're not, not vocal, but very aware of the surroundings, kind of starting to be able to pick up and manipulate and figure out what's going on around it. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about some of these other black dog adjacent monsters in D&D. Okay. One of the ones that we've already mentioned is Shadow Mastiffs. Yes. In lore, the nefarious organizations, the various cults, I think the cultists of Shar, especially the goddess of darkness, have a ritual to summon Shadow Mastiffs and they'll summon them as guard dogs for their temples or their holy sites. Other evil humanoids will summon them as guardians for their lairs, for their strongholds, because they are able to meld into the darkness. They are literally able to go invisible in dim light and darkness. Yes. And the only way to reveal them is with sunlight. Okay. Or, you know, a magical equivalent, which would be the daylight spell. Yes. I mean, that's burning a third level spell slot just to be able to see, see them. See things, yeah. So, I hope a character has blind fighting. <laughs> And there's a more powerful variant called the Shadow Mastiff Alpha, which has, you know, better stats, more hit points. But it also has an ability where it can howl. Okay. And everyone has to make a wisdom saving throw or they're frightened. Everyone in 300 feet. Okay. Which is a big area. That's a huge area. That That is far more than most maps. And that's, you know, one of those things where you hear that and now you don't want to go where they're guarding. Right. Because when you're frightened, you can't move towards the source of your fear. Correct. And they may not be able to see the Shadow Mastiffs, but they could hear Hear it it came from that that door over there. Yes. This baying howl came out of that door. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going everywhere but there. Absolutely, yeah. And again, as I mentioned, you can reveal them using daylight, sunshine. While they are in sunshine, they actually have... Sunlight weakness. Okay. So they have disadvantage on all attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws while in sunshine. Sunlight. Okay. And that makes sense. Moving along, the next variant that is very similar to the Shadow Mastiff are the Yeth Hounds. The Yeth Hounds are Fey in origin as opposed to being from the Shadowfell. They also travel in packs. They also have this sunlight weakness. Their weakness to sunlight is more substantial than even the Shadow Mastiff. Really? If they enter sunlight, they are instantly banished to the deep ethereal. Okay, I can definitely see these being held by vampires then. That is actually one of those things that if the original master of a pack of Yeth Hounds has been slain, the pack of Yeth Hounds will search out a new master. Okay. And vampires and necromancers and hags are all listed as the sort of inherently evil creatures that a pack of Yeth Hounds will go and attach themselves to. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. They are also notoriously difficult to kill. Yes. If you're attacking them with weapons that are not magic and are not silvered, they're going to do nothing. They are completely immune to non-magic, non-silvered weapons. They don't have any resistances to different types of magical damage. But if you throw a couple of Yeth Hounds early on 
as sort right. of a you're not supposed to be, be here, here right just to drive the party out of an area that's like when i was playing you know fallout 3 and you come across that first super mutant or two and i was like oh maybe i should go back this away bye <laughs> And going back and talking a minute about the sunlight, they will never willingly enter sunlight, even if it means they die. Okay. They will not enter sunlight to avoid death, even. Their masters cannot compel them to enter sunlight. Okay. And that is just built into what they are, and that plays into that whole winter court, that 30 days of night sort of thing. Yeah. Where, you know... This is a creature of the, the night. Day, yes. And finally, they have a telepathic bond to their master as long as they are on the same plane of existence. Fair enough. So their master can experience all of their sensory input. Okay. The master can issue commands telepathically from anywhere on the same plane of existence. Okay. And the Yeth Hounds can communicate with one another within their pack. Oh, nice. So, you know, you have this exceptionally intelligent hound. These would probably be the ones that would be used for the wild hunt if you were to do a wild hunt in your game because of their fey connection, specifically their unseelie fey connection. But you have these exceptionally intelligent dogs that are able to communicate telepathically with the rest of their pack to maneuver and manipulate and fully utilize their pack tactics. I love it. They're not going to have that base bestial intelligence that a pack of wolves would have. They're going to be intelligent. They're going to actually have rudimentary tactics. They're going to single out and focus down individual threats. Yeah, no, I love that. I also saw the Ethhounds as obviously like guardians or something for a vampiric campaign. Also, something in the Feywild, particularly if I forget the name of the exact area in the Feywild, it's where a lot of your lycanthropes are and the goddess of the moon is. So it is going to be a perennially dark forest. Yes. And so, especially with this connection to their master on the same plane, again, something to hound and not necessarily constantly attack the party, but your big bad person's always going to have this constant line and know exactly what the party's doing at all times because they are going to be constantly under the gaze of these hounds. Absolutely, yeah. That is an excellent way to give your archfey villain a way to know exactly what the party's tactics are exactly what the party's weaknesses are and to tailor their response yes whenever they finally meet the party to the party's tactics you know if the party automatically goes into the same routine at the beginning of every single combat you know the barbarian rages and charges the cleric casts bless the wizard casts fireball whatever it is they can set up specific defenses Mm mm-hmm to prevent that from happening in the early stages of the yeah. combat. When your players are like, but you're doing this just to get at me. I'm like, no, you've been tracked by these hounds the entire time. They can communicate with this NPC so they know. And then it falls right within the mechanics of the story. Especially if, you know, they have a patron who is another fae. Yes. Who is able to express that who is able to explain that oh, that you know great. this is a pack of yeth hounds that you've been tussling with off and on as you've been going through and doing things for my queen yes they are able to communicate with their master anything they see their master sees yes. anything they hear their master hears yes 
using those specific terms whenever they're communicating, whenever they're explaining what this is. So that way, the party has no excuse right. whenever you show up and they have a counter to everything yeah. that you're doing. That said, if you've got a really good party, some a party with a lot of table experience, or just maybe they're quite clever, maybe they get this warning about the Yeth Hounds and that the Master hears and sees whatever they... So they do follow this pattern every time until they can finally hunt out and eliminate those Yeth Hounds. And then once they're gone, they knowingly change their tactics. That is absolutely a, an option. All right. We did mention at the beginning of the episode talking about Cat Sith. Yes. Cat Sith is an Irish cat creature. It was also brought into England in certain English folktales, I think, surrounding the King of the Cats. Yes. The Cat Sith was a dog-sized cat, all black except for a white spot on its chest. Kind of like a tuxedo cat. Kind of like a tuxedo cat, but without any of the white on its face. Yeah. But that was the visual for what a cat Sith was. And their thing was, if they were to walk across the body of the deceased before they were buried, the act of them walking across it would steal the soul okay. from the body. That was the whole reason behind the long wakes the night before the burial. Okay. You know, you didn't leave the body unattended. You kept a watch on it to make sure that the cat Sith did not come and walk across the body and steal the soul. Fair enough. It's also why you didn't have fires in and around the body because the cat Sith was drawn to warmth. Yeah. It's a cat. Yeah. It's going to want to curl up in that nice, warm, cozy right. space. That's also why these wakes were full of raucous events. You know, there's drinking and cajoling and wrestling and all of these other things and music and dance because they're trying to create all of that noise to scare away the cat Sith. Okay. And another thing is, I think it was on Samhain, you were supposed to leave out a saucer of milk for the cat Sith. Right. And if you didn't, the cat Sith would basically put a curse on your house and all of your cattle would dry up. Yes. You know, so you wouldn't have milk. Right. Because you were stingy. Yeah. Because, I mean, <laughs> cat Sith is a cat and cats tend to be assholes. I love cats. Cats are assholes. <laughs> that is very true. There is another cat spirit that we have talked about a little bit called the Grimalkin. If you've read the Dresden Files books, Cat Sith is the pinnacle of the Grimalkin. Well, being the king of the cats would make sense. Yes, but technically they are two separate things right. that just happen to be cats. Yes. Happen to be very large cats. Grimalkin is actually an archaic term, specifically meaning a gray cat. Yeah. And as you mentioned, in the 16th through 18th century, Grimalkin became synonymous with a witch's familiar. Right. You know, a witch would have a cat. These are gray cats in the stories, but, you know, they get transformed into black cats as the stories go along. They are tied to the Scottish Highlands, and they're actually a type of fairy cat. So they are actually fae, fae. in the folklore stories. Correct. Now, I will say, dealing with Cat Sith, and I am going to give a bit of a trigger content warning here, this ritual in which to summon Cat Sith, or the spirit of some of these Grimalkin, is kind of rough. So, going into it, and give you a brief second, if you do want to skip like 15-30 seconds ahead, go for it. But, supposedly, especially around Sawin, uh, or Samhain, Sawin? Yeah, Sawin. One of the ways you could summon Cat Sith, and if you were to summon Cat Sith, he was supposed to either grant you a wish, 
or offer you services or a favor. But in order to do this, you had to roast cats alive for like seven days straight without taking a break or sleeping. And it's supposed to be the crying and the yowling is supposed to be what drew the spirits there, at which point Cat Sith was supposed to show up with a large band of black cats. The fact that you were killing a bunch of cats in a very unpleasant way, the fact that Cat Sith is a cat and cats are assholes, I'm not thinking this ritual ever really ended well. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. But this was, I forget the name of the ritual, but it was a very specific ritual. And it was to either gain an answer to a question or a favor. Okay. Now, Grimalkin is also a character, the death of whom is central to the oldest novel in the English language. Beowulf. Beware the cat. Modern English. Oh, Sorry. okay. Uh, Beware the Cat, written in 1570. Okay. The whole story is about two cats talking about the death of Grimalkin. Okay. And so that's the whole... I need to find ...central this. conceit of the story. It's, okay. See, how was it worded in my reading? It was the first horror story longer than a short story that was published in English. English. Okay. Okay, I'm in. Now, the Grimalkin did appear in D&D. In 3rd edition, they were in Monster Manual 2, and they were a shapeshifter. Yes. Their preferred form was a large blue-gray cat, about the size of a dog. Yeah. They were a medium-sized creature, so they were going to be pretty honking huge. About the size, I mean, if you know what a lynx is, or maybe a smaller, like, mountain lion or bobcat, it's probably going to be about that size. Again, you're looking 40 to 50-ish pounds and probably at your knee at the back. Probably, yeah. Maybe even bigger yeah. weight-wise. Maybe closer in the 60 to 80 pound range. Potentially, yeah. They're very intelligent. They're capable of speech. They are known for being extremely chatty. Yeah. They like to talk. And they would change shapes based on their moods. So if they were trying to entertain, if they were trying to find amusement, they would take these very amusing shapes. Okay. They could They could transform into any medium or smaller beast. Okay. Or critter. So, you know, if they wanted to be, you know, just kind of jokey, you know, they would transform themselves into a hedgehog and roll up into a ball to roll across the table. Something like Sounds that. Sounds fun. I, um, I like these things. And then if they were forced to defend themselves or to defend their master, they would take on a more violent, more vicious form. So like an actual proper wild cat or, okay. a, or a dog or something along those lines. Something with some real offensive capability okay, something to Something like it. a jaguar or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And they imprinted to their master. Okay. So they would keep with their master, you know, one-to-one for the entirety of their lives. Okay. And they were known for being extremely loyal, and they were actually sought after for that purpose. Okay. I mean, because, you know, if they see somebody breaking in, you know, to steal their master's stuff, they have the intelligence not to just, you know, go and attack this party of six or seven people. Right. But they're going to tag along behind and very loudly just chatter away, just completely blowing any sort Sort of of subterfuge that this party is undertaking and just talking really, really loud until the guards overhear it and come to investigate. I could see that. I could also see something along the lines like maybe they shapeshift into a mouse or even some sort of insect and hop into one of your bags. And so, like, I got a bunch of stuff. Is, Is the plate talking? Is the bag talking or what? Or maybe it's just waiting for a good opportunity to, you know, hey, look, I'm an elephant. I mean, nothing as big as an elephant, but, you know, you're unloading your bags and all of a sudden you stick your hand in and 
Holy crap, it's a badger. <laughs> a porcupine. Yeah. Well, I was thinking honey badger. Now, I'm thinking, you know, they reach into the bag okay. and they transform from a dormouse into a porcupine. porcupine. And now you've got your hand in there up to the elbow. <laughs> full of quills. And, and it's all full of quills because they've grabbed a hold of it. Right. And now it ain't letting go. Yeah, I like it. And the last thing about the Grimalkin is that they have empathy. So they can read the surface emotions of anyone they come into contact with. Which, which Kind of a catch, right? Yeah. And that helps with they're very loyal. They imprint to their master. They will eventually, as they stay with their master for longer periods of time, they will start to adopt the traits and mannerisms of their masters. Okay. So that lends into that. They can literally read the room. Okay, yeah. And pick up like, oh... This person is feeling a little down. I'm going to turn on the amusement factor and I'm going to cheer them up. Okay. You know, this person is very angry. I'm going to be a very docile sort of thing to try and calm them down. I would love to see... We've talked to these and generally in a hostile manner. And again, because these are going to be monstrous creatures, generally things are going to fight on the table. I would love to see a Grimalkin bound to the stereotypical kind of ditzy, slightly batty wizard. Maybe like Merlin from the animated Sword in the Stone. I had that. Yeah? Okay. In our all-nighter game. That was the session I missed, I think. Yeah. With Mr. Whiskers? Mr. Whiskers. Mr. Ah. Whiskers was a Grimalkin, yes. I missed Mr. Whiskers. Yeah, I missed that. I missed that session, unfortunately. Yeah, you weren't there for the reveal, but yes. <laughs> Mr. Whiskers is my what? <laughs> Indeed. Going through talking about the Grimalkin, too, and unfortunately, some of these did run together. I can't remember if this was a in-game version of Grimalkin or if this was a lore version of a Grimalkin. But the Grimalkin, in one of these versions, was actually a witch that could also shapeshift from the witch's form into a cat form. But they could only shift nine times, and on the ninth change of form, it was permanent, whichever direction it was. Yeah, I do remember reading that as well. I that just is, can't remember if that was that the folklore thing. Okay, that was a yeah. folklore, okay. Now, the last thing I'm wanting to talk about, something kind of adjacent to all of the black dogs, is a folklore thing called the Church Grim. The Church Grim are canine spirits specifically bound to guard graveyards. The superstition or folklore tradition was that whenever you were to consecrate a new graveyard, you would bury a dog in the corner of the cemetery, and the spirit of that dog would be the guardian of that cemetery because whatever the first living thing buried in that cemetery was, their soul, their spirit was bound to that place to guard it. So they didn't want to bury a person first. Fair enough. So they would bury a dog in the corner... And that dog's spirit would act as a guardian for this space. There aren't really any good analogs to the Church Grim in D&D. You have lots of different incorporeal spirits, ghosts and wraiths and banshees and all that. None of them really fit the bill. But that's okay because we're a homebrew podcast. Woohoo! And so I sort of put together how I would construct... A church grim. Okay. Just going off of a specifically a dog spirit guarding a cemetery. Okay. So we're going to start with the stat block for a Shadow Mastiff Alpha. Okay. We are going to change its damage resistances, damage immunities, and condition immunities from those of a Shadow Mastiff to those of a ghost. Okay. In order to give it the incorporeal stuff. I like it. So it's going to be resistant to acid, fire, lightning, thunder, and non-magical weapons. It's going to be immune to cold, necrotic, and poison. 
I like it. And it's also going to be immune to the charmed, exhaustion, frightened, grappled, paralyzed, petrified, poison prone, and restrained conditions. That's pretty beefy so far. Or at least it's fairly tanky. Well, those are all things that Ghosts. basically you have to have a physical form in order to... Yeah. With the exception of the charm and frighten. Everything else requires a physical form to yeah. affect. The next thing, you give it the incorporeal movement okay. trait, which allows it to pass through creatures and objects. I would remove the part where it takes damage for being inside of an object if it is within a stone object within the graveyard. So okay. if it goes into a headstone, if it goes into a mausoleum, if it goes into a crypt, okay, some permanent element of the graveyard, it can enter into that without taking damage. Okay, I like it. Because it has to have a place to stay until it's needed. Yeah, and it wants to stay out of the sunlight generally. Personally, I would take away the sunlight weakness. Okay. To it. Maybe you're only going to encounter it at night because, you know, the sort of people who are going to go and try and rob a graveyard are going at night. Generally aren't going to try and do that in the middle of the day. Hey, look, it's noon. Hi, everybody. Just. (laughs) He's fixing a divot. (laughs) I would upgrade its attacks and abilities by bumping up its proficiency bonus from a plus two to a plus three, you know, just to give it a little more oomph. Okay. I would either give it a second attack on its attack action or add a necrotic damage on top of its normal damage. Okay. So the Shadow Mastiff has a 2d6 plus 3, I think, for its damage roll. You know, give it a second attack or give it a 2d6 necrotic damage on top of that. Okay. If you wanted to go a little bit further, buff it by giving its bite the same effect of blocking healing That, like, the Chill Touch cantrip has. I like that. The biggest limiter that I would put on it is that you would limit it to be bound to the graveyard. It cannot leave the graveyard. I like that. So, if you want to get away from it, all you have to do is leave. Right. Step out of the graveyard. Step out of the graveyard, it'll stand there and it'll bark at you. Right. But it's not going to actually be able to leave the graveyard and continue attacking you. Okay. I would leave it with the howl ability that the Shadow Mastiff Alpha has, where it can howl and the creatures have to make a wisdom save or be frightened. I might even go so far as to give it the Yeth Hound variant, where they're actually terrified and they have to use their turn to flee in the same way that undead do when you use turn undead on them. I like that. Because that's its whole purpose. Its whole purpose is to keep you out if you intend harm. Yes. So it will be able to discern, is this somebody coming to rob a grave? Is this somebody coming to vandalize? And it would get that sort of advantage on those individuals while they're in the graveyard. So, like, they get advantage on attacks against evil-aligned creatures or creatures who are there with a evil intent. Okay. They gain resistance or perhaps even immunity to turn undead. Because they're there for, for that, that purpose. purpose. Yeah. And, you know... Guard dogs are kind of fearless whenever you get them on point. Yes. Possibly even giving them a regeneration, like a regen 5 or a regen 10, while they are within the graveyard. Okay. So that way, you know, you just can't kill it. It's a dog spirit. Yeah. You know, it's a dog ghost. What are you going to do? Right. No, Um, I I really love that. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to throw out a challenge to our listeners here. And I'm going to probably like throw a a wrench in Ian's plans as well at the same time. (laughs) Listeners, back me on this one. If we can get some comments and maybe a handful of requests. I love I love this Dogrim stat. I love it. It's beautiful. I have two other options. 
Bear Grimm, because again, just bear spirits are awesome. Goose Grimm, because peace was never an option. Peace was never an option. <laughs> I mean, I'd not be opposed to it. Okay. So yeah, if you guys want to hear this, uh, send us some comments. And yes, let, let's get a vocal mass appeal here for a bear and or a goose grim. All right. Just to wrap up, a couple of other honorable mentions, if you will. We talked a little bit about hellhounds. Yes. Hellhounds in 5th edition, at least, are kind of boring. Yeah. They're basically dire wolves On fire. With, with a fire immunity and a fire breath. Meh. That's literally it. That's all they do. In older editions, there was a Hellhound variant called the Nessian Warhound. Awesome name. The Nessian Warhounds were a specific breed Mm -hmm. of Hellhounds that Asmodeus personally bred and kept. Oh, nice. So they're bigger. They're like five to six feet tall. Okay. And they just have a lot more oomph behind them. Talking a little bit more about the cat side of stuff. I mentioned that Blink Dogs are sort of the counterpart to the Yef Hounds. Displacer Beasts also fill that sort of cat. I could see that. You know, they have that displacement ability, so you don't know if you saw them. Yeah. And and they just have that feel to them. I totally get that. I mentioned the Vores. They're these hyena-like creatures that are native to the Abyss, and they have naked rat tails. Yum. So, yeah, they're kind of weird, but yeah. they're creatures of chaos, so what do you expect? Chaos with who? There are the canamorphs. Canamorphs are basically, if some of these dog creature things reached an intelligence where they became antherians. Okay. So these are specifically hellhounds, shadow mastiffs, or vores that are capable of taking on a humanoid form. Okay, I like it. And then the last one... Not quite. I've got one after this, but... Well, the last one I have are the Howlers. Uh, Howlers being these dog-like creatures native to Pandemonium, where instead of their howls causing fear, their howls cause madness. I love them. I want to play with some puppies. And they have this kind of rough of spines, almost like a mane, that they're able to, like, rattle. Ooh. And, yeah, it's... I like them. Yeah, I definitely want to play with some of these. Yeah. Okay. All right, so you have one more. Yeah, I've got one more, and this is solely on the lore end. This is a callback to, I believe it was our Christmas of 2021. But, and again, we are stretching a little bit outside of the UK and England, but we have to mention the Icelandic Yulcat. I knew exactly where you were going. Giant kitty that eats the children who don't get clothes. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, that would do it. Yes, it would. Uh, Especially, you know, considering the Samhain connection yes of you know you leave cat sith a gift at Samhain and i don't do bad things to you yeah you know you give your kids new clothes and i don't do and, bad things to and them. then the onus is actually on the other person to wear yes, the new clothes exactly because if you get new clothes and you don't wear them your cat's gonna eat you exactly so yeah that, so you gotta wear that scratchy christmas sweater yep <laughs> All right, I think that pretty well does it for today. Yeah, that wraps us up. This was Um, a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, as you may have been able to tell, we didn't really have a whole lot of structure (laughs) going into this one today, but I think it came out all right. It did, yeah. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you again in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. 
Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.